when everything feels tethered by an internet connection. There's nothing more frustrating than Ah, the dreaded buffering wheel. Um, every time it pops up for me, I go through a series of conversations in my mind. Do I refresh the page to kind of hurry things along? How long do I wait? Do I wait at all? That's it, I'm gonna restart the router, right? Like, everything feels so absurd when you see that buffering wheel going. And that's partly because we expect everything to be quick, everything. We're trained that way. Life is on demand. When you saw that buffering wheel, I know you had a twinge of frustration, at least, or question going through your mind, what do I do next? I mean, you have internet algorithms that go from one click to the next, these constant instant pleasure cycles with one link after another until finally you've spent 15 minutes trying to discover where is Macaulay Culkin now? If you've never been there, it's a terrible place to be. But listen, when you do find yourself not moving as quick as you hope to move, it can feel disorienting. Do you remember earlier in those days of shelter in place when everybody found themselves at home and suddenly Amazon two-day shipping wasn't two days long? Um, for so many, myself included, it kind of felt like the world was ending. We expect everything to be quick. But here's the rub, nothing worthwhile is quick. And we know this, right? The richest conversations we've ever had, the deepest of friendships, reconciliation, justice, a lifelong marriage, just to name a few. All those take a lot of time. And the same is true when it comes to faith. You see, when we find Jesus in the gospel according to Luke, which is where we're going to spend most of our time this summer, Jesus again and again says, hey, listen, I know the way to the richest of life. I have life within me. But there's a spoiler alert. It's going to take a whole lot of time. So how? How, when everything within us is trying to hurry life along, how do we cultivate a faith that lasts? A faith that lasts long enough, frankly, for Jesus to do the needed and worthwhile work deep within us and around us so that life can actually break forth. That's the question that Jesus is addressing in our text today. Now, how he goes about addressing that question is maybe part of the problem for some of us, and we'll get to why here in a minute. But when you look at Jesus' teachings, he often uses a form that is called a parable. Now, granted, you've probably heard a parable once or twice in your life. As a matter of fact, if you've ever heard of the Good Samaritan, that was his idea. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But over the weeks and over the months this summer, we're going to learn how to read the parables, understand what Jesus meant in his context, and who and what he was hoping to reveal in them. So, question number one. What is a parable? I love the way that scholar Kenneth Bailey writes in his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. He describes a parable this way. A parable is an extended metaphor, and as such, it is not a delivery system for an idea, but a house in which the reader-listener is invited to take up residence. In other words, it's not Amazon next day shipping. You get your idea and you move on with life. Instead, it's sheltering in place with a metaphor until it gets uncomfortably close. It takes a long time for that to set in, to sink in. And what Jesus is saying is, give me time 
and I'll enrich your life. I'll show you new life. The only problem is, for many of us, we won't give him that time, which leads us to today's parable. If you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. In the New Testament, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke. And by the time we get to chapter 8, Jesus is in what is called his public ministry. People have heard about Jesus. People are starting to flock to Jesus and ask questions of Jesus. And when you get to Luke chapter 8, we find that Jesus is going from town to town. He is proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And in this particular moment here in Luke 8, he is surrounded by both his disciples and a larger crowd from across the region of Palestine. And he takes them into a parable, a parable about a farmer who's sowing seed. Now, under quarantine, I know for a lot of us, we have become reacquainted with plants, either because you were desperate for a friend that wouldn't talk back, or you wanted to get into the hobby of gardening. Well, in the first century, this wasn't a hobby. This was life itself. And the brilliance of Jesus is that he starts to craft a metaphor, a story, a house, using the infrastructure of everyday life for nearly everyone in that moment. And it comes with so much meaning. It's loaded with meaning for those, Jesus says, who have ears to hear. In other words, those who sacrifice the time to understand what it is Jesus is saying. So what is Jesus saying? Now, this parable is extraordinary, and here's why. Because after Jesus tells the parable, the disciples ask, well, Jesus, what does it mean? And he actually tells them. He says, listen, I'm going to let you in on a secret. I'm going to let you in on something that not everybody's going to understand when they first hear the parable. Why does Jesus do this? Well, for two reasons. One, not everybody's willing to give Jesus the time of day. And two, there are many, when they understand what it is that Jesus is bringing in the kingdom, they may find themselves not only with a lack of excitement, but actually in opposition to what Jesus has come to do. Well, in verse 9, the disciples, they ask Jesus, can you explain it to us? And Jesus says, sure, I'll explain what this parable, this metaphor means. And what Jesus says is that there are three reasons that some people will not give him the time. And then he ends by noticing how those who do give him the time are different. So let's look at that together. Three reasons why some people won't give Jesus the time. If you look in verse 11, Jesus begins by unpacking how this seed is actually a metaphorical representation of the word of God. And the first reason some people won't give Jesus the time is because their hearts are heart like a path, such that when the word of God comes, it just bounces off. And here's the first reason why some people won't give Jesus the time. The first reason is some aren't willing to open up to anyone. And that might be because they've had a really painful experience in the past. It might be because they have an overinflated sense of self. It might even be because there's evil spiritual warfare going on in the background. There's way much more going on than we often realize. But whatever the reason, these folks, for some reason, aren't willing to be open to anyone else, not even Jesus. Now, the second reason some people won't give Jesus the time of day is because some aren't willing to go further than the hype. When you get down here to verse 13, we find that when Jesus tosses, he talks about the sower tossing the seed, some falls on this rocky soil. The seed first gets in the soil, 
and it begins to germinate, right? And the rocks underneath the soil, underneath the sun heat up. And this is perfect for these plants to initially shoot up quicker than the other plants. But then because they can't grow deeper roots, they die, they wither. And Jesus says, listen, there are some who are going to accept my news with excitement initially. They're going to be blown away. They're going to be excited about what I've come to do and what I've specifically come to do for them. But the moment it takes some level of effort or work that doesn't necessarily have great feelings associated with it, when those feelings are gone, so are they. Now, the third reason that some people won't give Jesus the time we see here in the text is that some aren't willing to let go. And we see this here in verse 14. You see, Jesus describes these things that we often won't let go as thorns that are growing up. And given enough time, they will choke the very life out of those who will not let them go. Whether it's a lifestyle, whether it's a status, whether it's a career, these particular things, when push comes to shove, if we won't let them go, will slowly erode our willingness to keep walking with Jesus. And so three reasons, three reasons why these folks won't last, why so many don't last. And that may be true for some, but here's the good news. It isn't true for all. And maybe you're listening to this parable and you're asking yourself the question, man, Gabe, I feel like I see myself in one of those soils. What do I do? Well, actually, you should find great comfort because that's what's called the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's a sign of life. It's deep hope that God is continuing to work in your life. So listen up. You see, there are a lot of ways not to last, but Jesus wants us to know how to cultivate a faith that does indeed last. He says, listen, if you want a fruitful life, if you want a full life, the life that only I possess, it's going to take two crucial things, okay? One's explicit, the other is implicit. And so here's the first thing we need. If you look with me at Luke chapter 8, verse 15, Jesus closes out this parable by saying, As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Three particular phrases that pack a dynamic punch. Here they are, hold fast, an honest and good heart with patience. All three phrases pointing to one big idea. If you want to cultivate a faith that lasts, you need what's often called grit. Now, Angela, what's her last name here? Angela Lee Duckworth wrote brilliantly in her book, Grit. She describes grit this way, which I think really captures these three big ideas brilliantly. She says, grit is passion and sustained persistence applied toward long-term achievement with no particular concern for rewards or recognition along the way. It combines resilience, ambition, and self-control in the pursuit of goals that take months, years, or even decades. Even decades. You see, the journey of faith and this full life is often experienced on the far side of faith rather than on the near side. Eugene Peterson, a brilliant theologian and pastor, describes faith this way. It's a long obedience in the same direction. You see, the good news about the good, good life that Jesus came to proclaim and to bring is that it's always opposed to earning. There is nothing we can do to make ourselves good enough to make God like us more. He already loves us unconditionally, but it has never, ever been opposed to effort. 
So where does this grit come from, right? If this is a crucial catalyst for a faith that lasts, where does it come from? It comes from seeing and savoring who Jesus is and what he actually has already done for us. That the creator God became human, lived a perfect life, died a sufficient and gruesome death to pay for our sins, three days later rose again, not just to validate that he is indeed the son of God, but that he might give us life and life abundant, free of charge. And when we see and we savor and we understand who he is and what he's done out of his great love for us, that becomes a catalyst for us to trust him, that he will deliver on his good promises to care for his own. I mean, think about this. Why do we struggle to take things slowly? Why do we want them quickly? Here's why. The less, at least for me anyway, the less I have to wait, the less I have to trust. The less I have to wait, the less I have to trust. If I have a short timetable, I'm really risking very little. And so if it doesn't come through in this very short window, I can easily fall on my backup plan or my alternatives. Thank you very much, Jesus. I think I've given you just enough time to prove yourself. I'm going to move on. But here's the problem. Jesus won't move quickly. He doesn't move quickly because he wants to cultivate trust and intimacy because he knows those are the most meaningful and deep and fulfilling of relationships. He doesn't want you to hold on to backup plans or alternatives. He wants you to open up your heart. He wants you to stay long past the hype as he slowly massages your fingers so that you can let go of all these alternatives that are eroding you from the inside out. And then and only then will you be able to see, will you be able to taste and see that Jesus really is that good, that faithful for yourself. Now, who can do this? No one alone, which is why the second crucial component to cultivating a faith that lasts is a collective. Now, a collective is a group of people who are gathering together on a common enterprise. And this is a little more implicit in the text. You see there in Luke chapter 8, verse 15, that the good soil is not singular you, it is a plural they. It's a plural, they. And this is on display on our text that you can never, ever, ever follow Jesus as a solo enterprise. Now, I know we can't gather together right now in person as the church, but there are plenty of ways that we can engage this collective enterprise. As a church, we're going to be encouraging that everyone who's meaningfully engaged to Christ's community would be in some group. And that even means, if possible, over the summer, as the restrictions lift, slowly engaging physically with that community group or another group of kind. And here at Christ Community, we're really encouraging community groups to relaunch come June 7th. Listen, listen, and and, and if that's still terrifying to you, that's totally okay. I know we're all in different places for a lot of different reasons. There are going to be a lot of groups that are going to continue to provide Zoom as a great space for connection. But listen, you don't have to do this alone. And we want to help. So if you want to get involved and you're not already in a group, Pastor Ben Beasley is our point person for community groups, and you can email him at benb at christcommunitykc.org. 
Even though we can't physically gather together in a large group, you don't have to go it alone. And listen to me, there's going to come a moment where your grit is going to be ground down and you're going to need that collective to cheer you on or in the words of Hebrews chapter 10, stir us up to love and good deeds as we continue to follow Jesus looking forward to the day. Now, what is this going to look like? This is what's so brilliant about this passage. We come to see that when we really lean into and actually give Jesus the time, we're going to be a lot like the women who were mentioned earlier in Luke chapter 8. You see, amongst the disciples and those who are following Jesus and the apostles, we read in Acts chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, that there were also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. You see, Jesus, he came to these women and they came from various backgrounds. Some were rejected, some were oppressed, but some also had influence, but he called them to follow him. And so they opened their hearts to him. They stayed long past the hype and they slowly let go of everything else but Jesus. As a matter of fact, they pushed back against some cultural boundaries. Women were considered to be in one of two places, the home or raising the family in that traditional first century culture. But instead, they are out working, raising money to support themselves and other disciples. Interestingly enough, when you come to the cross, if you fast forward towards the end of Luke, who's there at the foot of the cross but these women? When so many other disciples had run off, they're still there. And it's also of no surprise that when Easter morning comes, they're the first to the tomb. These women exemplify the life and the life abundant, this full and fruitful life that Jesus is calling us to if we give him but the time. And I'm convinced, I'm convinced that if we were to talk with them and say, hey, hey, how are you so great? How did you do this so well? Their response wouldn't be, oh, you know, here's how we did all these things so well. What they would say is that in the midst of so much that's going on in life, do you see what Jesus did for me? How can I not stay with him? And that's the beauty of the gospel. Sure, it takes grit, empowered by the Spirit, encouraged by a collective. But if we just give Jesus the time, he will give us life and life abundant. Will you give him the time? You don't have to be the strongest in the world. You don't have to have it all figured out. You just have to give Jesus the time. Will you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your mercy extends to us. You are open and inviting all who will come to you because you first came to us and you have already paid our debt and your grace is readily available to all who fall at the feet of Christ. For those who don't yet know you, may they surrender and find life in Christ. For those who do know you but are struggling, God, may you infuse a deeper grit by the power of your spirit to endure to the end. For those who are lonely, may we as a collective continue to surround and empower one another. But Lord Jesus, may you do it by the power of your spirit through your church. We pray in the name of Jesus and by the power of the spirit. Amen. Now, one way that we can nourish our grit 
and actually engage the collective is at the Lord's Supper. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus and you have some of those elements available, now's a perfect time to partake in the Lord's Supper. If you need a little bit more time, you can pause it right here. Get up, get those things together, some grape juice or really any liquid and some bread or really anything that's edible um, and bring that together for this moment. But before we come, let's remember what's been handed down to us. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, take and eat. <laughs>